This is, in lots of ways, sort of part two of uh, what we did just a little while ago. Um, you know, Romans is a book that lots of us have spent a lot of time with. Oh, this, okay. I was having an internal panic there for a second, but crisis resolved. Yeah. Romans is an interesting book in lots of ways, not least of which is how Paul works his way back. He begins in one place and kind of works his way back through the story of the Bible to the very foundation, core issue. There are two kinds of people you will ever meet in the world. That's it. Um, that's maybe, some might say that's an oversimplification. And it is, but not at a fundamental level. At a fundamental level, you will, I don't care who they are, or where they're from, what they do, you will meet two kinds of people in this world, and that is those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's it. Which greatly sort of simplifies our job. Um, I mean, just as a practical thing to remind yourself that nobody is sort of more or less in Adam. Uh, they might have some characteristics that you find maybe harder to take or harder to stomach, you know, or more reprehensible than another person. But no, you're not sort of halfway in Adam, a little bit in Adam. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. That's it. Uh, which uh, means that there's no one person sort of more reachable than another at that level, right? Uh, I know there's lots of different things we could add and there's lots of things we can say. But that, at the heart of it, at the heart of it, that's true. Uh, and that's true of all humanity. It's true of uh, any, anywhere you ever go in the world. Uh, Edward Fisher said this. He was speaking, actually, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul also speaks of Adam and Christ, like he does in Romans 5, which is what we're going to look at. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 47, Paul speaks of Adam and Christ as if there never had been any more men in the world besides these two. Therefore, making them head and root of all mankind, they having, as it were, the rest of the sons of men included in them. And I, I think that's true. Um, I think the story, the story of the Bible, we can sort of, it's sort of, sort of hip and cool to talk about the story of the Bible these days. But if you want to talk about the story of the Bible, it's the story of the two Adams that is really, uh, the stage upon which the whole story of redemption is played out. That's the big story. Um, now you, that's, you know, it's, I mean, of course, you can you can make that more general and say, you know, the big story is God's plan of redemption. There's just lots there's lots of ways to describe it. There's not just one way, but you can't really talk about you can't really talk about God's saving action without talking about the story of the two Adams. I mean, it is the big picture in the big picture. Um, it's kind of what makes the story of redemption go in many ways. Um, the Old Testament, the Old Testament to a large degree is the aftermath. Well, it is. It just, I mean, it is practically, historically, but, you know, theologically, it is the aftermath of the first Adam that you're reading about. Um, it's the thing that never goes away, even though it goes away in a reading sort of sense. 
right? I mean, Adam doesn't get much mention again, you know, just from, in, from reading. But Adam is the, uh, the issue at the garden is the thing that churns underneath the surface constantly. It never, ever goes away. And you can see the evidence of it constantly as you're reading the Old Testament. And it explains why there's no stopping point. You know, one of the things about reading the Old Testament is you read along and you think, you know, if, if you could sort of put your, this isn't always the best thing to do, but if you can kind of sometimes read the Old Testament and just imagine if you had never read it before. Every time you get to a point where you think, ah, it explodes again. It doesn't matter who it is. I mean, even the highest points, don't, it doesn't stop, right? You can get to the story of, you can get to the story of Abraham and you get to that, that glorious story in Genesis 22 uh, where God says, now I know you're the friend of God, right? And uh, everything that God has said in the scripture about Abraham is shown to be true. He truly is. What, when God said, when God declared him to be righteous, it turns out to be, in fact, true. And you can see it in his life. But then, how long does it take before Abraham's children go completely haywire? Uh, you can see it in Noah, who is count, who is who is who is uh, is said to be a righteous man. And then you can see, well, this it's not going to stop with him either. I mean, the whole world is basically recreated with Noah at the center, he and his family. And what happens? Well, it's still just the family, and there's already a big issue of sin. Uh, you can keep going. Go, I mean, <laughs> go to another. Go to look at some more highlights. Jacob. I mean, what, how many, what can we say? Even David, even David, who along with Moses and Abraham, those three, the three most revered people in the Old Testament, and you can see why. You know, but take Moses, for instance. You know, I mean, Moses, uh, Moses finally gets fed up. I mean, I can sympathize with Moses hitting that rock with a stick. I probably would have snapped way before that. But it doesn't begin, it doesn't end with Moses. Moses dies and the people of Israel continue being, doing what they had always been doing. In regards to them saying, from this day forward, we will do everything that God says. You know, then Caleb and Joshua die and what happens? In those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You know, I mean, Moses is up on the mountain, mountain getting the law and the people down below go absolute pagan. I mean, they're not down there having like a cookout, right? That is a full-on celebration with an idol at the middle of it, right? And they're doing all the things that people did around idols in those days, uh, you know, regardless of Aaron being like, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I don't know. We put some gold in there and poof, out popped this calf. I can't tell you, right? And so, you know, and then you, you, know, you fast forward and you come to David, a man after God's own heart. It says, you know, he's a valiant man. The story of David is this, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a story of tragedy, right? With his son, Absalom, he finds out, he finds out Absalom's dead and he cries out and you can hear it in his fatherly voice, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. It's just a, a life, as glorious as his life was, a life that was filled, that was hit by this enormous, overwhelming tragedy and friends who betrayed him. And then What? In his old age, he doesn't go down sort of in quiet glory. The army goes out, and you know the story. Not only does he, not only does he uh, um, 
take another man's wife and and uh, go into uh, Bathsheba. He also arranges for her husband, who by all accounts was a completely upright guy. He arranges, he, he arranges it so that man will be killed. And then David's son Solomon. There's uh, Before Solomon is dead, there are foreign temples inside Jerusalem. He's the wisest man that's ever lived. And then and the story goes on and on. But it's the, it's the Adam problem that is never ending. It's always, like I said, it's always, it's always at least under the surface, if not just sort of blaring right in your face the whole time. It is the issue. And again, it is why you never come to a stopping place. The Adam issue is what the old covenant law was not able to deal with, but it was never meant to. I want to be really clear about that. The law was never designed to deal with that issue. The law did what it needed to do, and it did it perfectly. It just didn't do more than it was meant to do, right? The law was never meant to save. Um, it did its job. But what the, what you had was you had these you had these external commands. What that were that was met with people who were where outside the garden. Once, once, once mankind is outside the garden, everybody is born where? Under God's condemnation. That's it. There's no choices. There's only one place to be born once the garden is shut down, and that is under God's judgment and condemnation. Every person born is born with the sin and death of Adam hanging over them and in them. Every person. Right, so the the people who, uh, if you're born, you not you don't just inherit. It's not it's, it's not really a matter. It's not just you know, do you inherit Adam's sin? You inherit the curse, death. Right, that's the punishment of sin is death, and we're born into it. And that's the big that's the big issue. So when Paul comes to Romans, he 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 paints a whole context. He he draws together a whole context that is ever leading back to here's why the things I'm saying can be true. You want to know why um, Paul can speak about a righteousness that is it is um, pointed to in the law and the prophets, right? But it's beyond them. Uh, you want to know why Paul can talk about justification by faith? Do you want to know why Abraham could be actually credited with righteousness and it not be a big lie, right? Uh, you want to know why God can count Abraham righteous and not and not be unjust, right? Because if God just says to Abraham, you know what, you're what's fine. You're righteous. Yeah, we'll just let that other stuff go. Well, God is no longer just and righteous. There's only one way that the things that Paul's talking about in Romans 3 and 4 can be true, and that is the big issue has been solved, has been settled. That is the the question of Adam. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans. In Romans 5.12... It's kind of like the hub of the wheel of Romans in some kind of ways. At least in the first part of it, if not the whole thing. And you know, just let me just, let's just go back a little bit and think about what Paul's doing in Romans. I know you know this. Of course, Paul begins, you know, the great statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For In the gospel, uh, righteousness from God is revealed that is from faith from first to last. Just as written, the righteous man will live by faith. And then what does he do? He goes on in Romans 1.18, basically to 3.18, to make a case. 
Now, Romans 1, 18 to 3, 18 is not just an example or pictures of how bad people are. I mean, people are, I mean, they're bad. But it's not just Paul like, hey, look at, here's this is bad. And look, the Gentiles do this. And hey, don't forget the Jews do this too. What Paul essentially does, no, what he does, forget essentially. What Paul does in Romans 1, 18 to basically 3, 18 is he presents God's case against humanity. It's like it's God's legal charge against humanity. And there it is, both Jew and Gentile. Right? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. It's all faith from first to last, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. And he then he but but and then he goes on to establish God's again, God's case against the, the against humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And I think underneath of it is is what you what you're looking at a picture of is the whole world, Jew and Gentile, in Adam. The whole world in Adam. And then he comes to this sort of climactic moment in 3, 19 and 20. That's, these, these, these two verses often get skipped uh, a little bit because we, we memorize sort of the, we memorize the, uh, the string of quotations. Uh, you know, there's no one righteous, not even one. And then we know Romans 3, 21 to 31 19 and 20 kind of can fall through the tra- fall through the cracks a little bit because uh, they don't seem to have as much zing, and it says something that's a kind of, it says something that's a little bit complicated, or can be, but I don't think we can miss it. Paul says in Romans 19 and 20, 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will justify, justify, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law was able to provide. Now, it's not as though the law creates sin. The law is like a gigantic spotlight that shines on sin because what happens? People, people are told, don't do this, and then they do it. What's that? And then what? It becomes, in that sense, worse because it's not just ignorance. Right? So the law, the command, wasn't able to fix the problem. It could only make the problem evident. And that's what it did. And that's why Paul can say, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's that? That's the Jews, right? Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, because that's who it speaks to. But then this, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. How can the whole world, this doesn't seem fair. How can the whole world be accountable to God because of what the law says to the Jews? Right? This is not, it's not uncommon for somebody to read this and think, that doesn't seem, this doesn't seem quite right. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Paul brings the law forward as sort of evidence A or whatever you would call it. He brings, is that the right word? Exhibit A. That's the word I'm looking for. I knew evidence didn't sound right. It's handy to have a lawyer around. So he brings exhibit A, and exhibit A is the law, and specifically the, Jew, the Jewish experience of the law, and he looks at that and says, the whole world is condemned. Now, the whole world's not condemned because the Jews disobeyed, but the Jews become a test case. It's like this. If the Jews who know exactly what God commands, if they know what he wants, if it's written, as it were, in black and white, tablets of stone, what have you, on a scroll. 
if they know, they can read it, they can look at it and say, here's what, this is what God wants. This is what God doesn't want. This is what God expects. If they have it and having it cannot do it, what that does is reveals the heart of everybody in the world. So, I mean, what are the Gentiles going to do? Just sort of fall backwards into doing the law? No, because the heart, when the hearts of the Jews are revealed, the heart of mankind is revealed. Does that make sense? That's why Paul can speak the way he does in Romans 3, 19 and 20 and say, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And I know this for a fact because those who have the law are not justified by it. Because if anybody you would think could be justified, it would be those who have the law and know what God expects. But they're not. They can't be because the law can't justify. The reason the law can't justify, one of the reasons, one of the reasons the law can't justify, can't, can't justify is because you still have this issue of Adam. Human, human beings are still, as, as still outside the garden. And to be outside the garden means to be under God's condemnation. And so there has to be, but, but, but God is declaring people to be righteous. God is declaring ungodly people to be righteous. And as many people have pointed out, if God is able to say, and he is, if God says that Abraham is just, and if the declaration of justified by faith is made, it's, there's only one explanation. And that is the, the, um, the long history and influence and permeation of sin in the world through Adam has been taken care of. There has been a now there has been provided for the people of God a foundation for this righteousness that they have. That was that was able to overcome and supplant the sin of Adam, and not just the sin but death because you can't separate those two things. And that's what Romans five twelve and following is all about. And so Paul reaches back. He reaches back to the through the whole storyline of the Bible, right? He talks about he talk, again. He talks about the experience of the Gentiles, experience of the Jews, and then he establishes justification by faith. And then he backward. Then he starts backing up. He goes to Abraham and says, "Hey, like we said earlier, hey, look, this is exactly what I'm talking about." And then he gets to the root of the issue: why it's even possible for Abraham to be justified by faith, and not have it be just a flat out legal fiction and a lie. It's because it's not a lie. It's because the condemnation, that condemnation in Adam has been overturned. Not just fixed, but also redone. Right? Because Jesus doesn't just come, Jesus doesn't just come and take up where Adam left off and fix the problem. Jesus begins again. And not only that, it's in a worse place. Because Jesus comes at the, Jesus comes in and, and Jesus comes in in the aftermath of the death and condemnation. He doesn't start off sort of ground zero again. He comes in in the aftermath of death and sin, with God's full condemnation on the world, and then as the second or the true and the true Adam does not just what Adam failed to do, but he does what, what he he doesn't just sorry he doesn't just provide for Adam's sin and failure. He succeeds where Adam failed, right? Because Adam was promised what life. What did Adam not receive? Life. And Paul says in Romans, what is given? Justification and life. Because that was where, the, remember, in the garden, the garden wasn't a static existence. It wasn't like, hey, 
put your feet up, go fishing, do something. Adam, remember, Adam wasn't just told not to do things. He was commanded to do things, like subdue the earth and fill it and sort of create the whole, you know, make the whole thing, um, even though it was a good world. There was already movement before the fall, what we call eschatology, already existed before the fall. Because there was already a goal, and you can hear there's a goal in two ways. One, God says, subdue the earth. And he also, and he also, and he also promises, he says, you'll die, you know, the day you eat of it, you'll die. Now, the implication there is what? If you succeed and obey, what will happen? You will live. It will be life. And so there is a goal. And so Jesus comes, Jesus comes as the, as the perfect Adam and is able to provide and provides for the sin of Adam and the condemnation that's on the world through Adam's sin. That is death and, and he positively succeeds where Adam fails and provides life. Right? Not just gets us up to neutral, but provides life. The life that Adam didn't have. Now, I don't like to get involved in a sort of the what if Adam had done this, that, or the other thing. That question, I don't even, I mean, I'll talk about it. It's, it can be important sort of theologically, but if Adam hadn't, if, if what? Okay, first of all, we want to be careful that we're not trying to get too far into the mind of God, right? Somebody once asked Luther, what was God doing before he created the world? And he said, creating a hell for people who ask impertinent questions. That's what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, no, right? Um, and so I don't want to get too far into there, but... Practically speaking in the Bible, if Adam, if, the, if it hadn't happened, then God would have somehow perfected humanity in a, cre- in a creature, Adam. But that was never God's plan. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 1. Paul's, Paul's, God's plan all along was to bring all things to completion in, in Jesus. So the, the question of what if Adam, X, Y, and Z, is it's theologically has a theological importance, but practically in the practical, not just practically, but biblically, the way it comes out, it's not a really, it's not really a question in the Bible, because it turns out that God's plan all along was to was to was to establish everything in Jesus, right? And there's all kinds of difficult things to to talk to people about and answer questions to answer, but not we don't have to do that. I don't have to do that in this hour. So Paul Paul comes back to Adam. Now notice we, in the earlier session I talked about foreground and background. Notice in Romans 5, 12 to 21, what's in the background. There's not an emphasis in Romans 12, I'm sorry, Romans 5, 12 to 21. There's not an emphasis on faith. It, there's just, there just isn't. Now, faith is already established. Paul doesn't have to keep talking about it over and over and over again. He's already established justification by faith alone by the time he gets to Romans 5, 12 to 21. But when he gets to 5, 12, 20, 5, 12 to 21, he doesn't speak of faith. He just speaks of being made righteous. Now, it's implied, obviously. How? And the, the idea of imputation is not there either. He's already established that too. He uses a different word in Romans 5. So he's speaking, he's speaking differently in Romans 5, 12. Uh, in, sorry, in Romans chapter 5 and 12 to 21. He speaks here of being made righteous. It's not the same word. Because again, Paul's going back to the very foundation of things. And he begins with Adam. And he says... There it is. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sin. Now, 
I think what Paul's saying here is this. Paul is saying that Adam's, that death spread to everybody on account of Adam's sin. So what we inherit, what we inherit is not just, is not simply like the guilt of, 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 of eating. We inherit the result that is death. It's ours. And it's, it's inescapable. It's unavoidable. Because we're all born outside, we're all born outside the garden. So, another way is would be to say, so in this way, death spread to all men on account of which all sin. So, so the sin and death that flows from Adam becomes the basis for our own sin. The death in the world, which is God's condemnation, becomes the, becomes the basis for our own sinning. Because what Paul's talking about here, you can't separate sin and death. They are connected. So, so, so we sin. We sin. Why do we sin? Because we are born in a world where God's condemnation is all over it, and you, that condemnation is death. And then why do we why do we die? Because we sin. They're both there, right? The wages of sin is death. Paul says that in another place, right? Um, not too far from where we are right now. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. I think what Paul is doing, he's giving the reason why everyone sins. But in this, in this particular text, he is not emphasizing, I don't think he's emphasizing that each person, that, that each is, mm, I don't think he's emphasizing that um, each person's sin results in their own death, as in the wages of sin or death. I think he's just up to something different right here. And what he's up to is to show everybody's, everybody's, common, everybody's common connection to Adam as the source of sin and death. In the source of our guilt. Because again, because we're born under God's condemnation. And then he goes on, I think, to unpack the rest of these things. Without, I mean, he's, so in other words, when we come to this text, right? I don't think that uh, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is emphasizing. I don't think it's emphasizing what Romans 6, 23 is. That is the wages of sin is death. Um, it's not really, a, it's, I don't think it's really about here that, you know, dying is uh, the result of our personal sin. I think what Paul's talking about, he, again, he's establishing everybody's common unity in Adam. And then, the converse of that, the, the unity that we have in justification and righteousness through Jesus, the second Adam. So, in other words, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is not, first and foremost, about things that we do or don't do. It's about what we are, one way or another, Right? And so that's all I mean, is for those, that, one, that one short span of verses, uh, Paul is not putting the emphasis on you sin and then you die. Now, he, does that, he does that plenty. He does that plenty. It's not as though I'm calling that into question. What Paul is talking about is what God has done in these two people, these two men, that one provides either the foundation for our condemnation or the foundation of our righteousness in life. And then he goes on to say, He goes on to say, for sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, what he means there is that he's not saying that, you know, God's like, well, I'm not going to really count that as a sin. I mean, there's no law yet. That's not what it means. I think what he means, he's talking here about when sin is counted as a specific sin against a known law, what is sometimes referred to as a transgression. That is, you know, sin, obviously, and he says, obviously, there's sin in the world because people died. That's all the evidence you need. But when he says it wasn't counted, I think what he means is counted as 
a transgression against a known command. And that's exactly what he says next. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, what's that mean? I think that means what I was saying a minute ago. When he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, they all died, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, when Adam transgressed, it was against a known, specific, given, divine command. The people between Adam and the giving of the law, they died, but not... But they died and they're guilty, obviously, but their sinning was different in that it wasn't against a known specific divine command. Nevertheless, they died. And then he goes on to say, it was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. Now, let me try to, exp- I think, I, hopefully I've explained this clear enough. But I think what Paul is doing is he's, like, he's saying this, the experience and situation of Adam is like the experience and situation of Christ. Two men who are standing before God, who stand before God with known commands to fulfill. That's how, that's, that, that's how Adam is a type of Jesus, right? Not just that he sort of foreshadows him, but here Paul specifically is saying, I think he's talking about obedience in the face of a divine command. Does that make sense? Right? Is that clear enough? It can get really kind of hazy. Um, and so that's why I think he calls him a, a type of the one to come, um, because he's, he's drawing the parallel, or he's making the parallel even, you know, even more. He's, he's making the parallel really as tight as possible so he can show that it really does come down to these two people and your relationship to them. And the fact that what you have is sin that enters in the world through disobedience and righteousness that enters the world through what? Obedience. That's the two ways. So that... So that ultimately, finally, when we are justified, when we're made righteous, it is on the basis of obedience, just not ours. The foundation is the obedience of Jesus, right? And so we are justified by faith in the one who obeyed. So our justification connects us, connects us to Jesus who perfectly obeyed, as in the, you know, as in the opposite way of Adam failed. So our faith connects us to the object of our faith who in every way obeyed God. And so that's how Jesus is, that's how, that's how it comes down to disobedience and obedience, because that's the two things Paul talks about. But he talks about disobedience and obedience of, of Adam and Jesus. I think I said it backwards, but you, that's the two people. So we are, we are not directly in view in these verses. Now, Everything that he's talking about affects us, but he's really, I think, whittling everything down to its very, 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 very core, again, of how we can even have a doctrine like justification by faith and it not be a lie. Because without the obedience of Jesus, the second Adam, if God says you're just, it's either a lie or God, is, God himself is not just. Because he, he declares a person to be righteous with and there's no foundation for it. That's why I really that's why I don't like when people talk about justification and they entertain this idea of it being a legal fiction. Like that is horrible to say. It's not a legal fiction any more than it's a fiction that Jesus perfectly obeyed God and his righteousness becomes mine. It remains his, but it becomes counted to me. That's not a fiction. It was done. It was, it was done, and we're connected to it by faith. So anyway, let's move along. Paul's point here is to 
move from sort of the one to the many. And look what he says. In every way, Jesus's, in every way, Jesus's obedience and his success, if you want to use that word, if that, I don't know if that's the best word to use, in the face of his command from God, outstrips, outstrips the failure of Adam. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the one that results of the man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift flowing from many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign, look, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the life that was laid out in front of Adam, that was not, that was, that was, that Adam failed to get, we have in Jesus. And life comes through what? In terms of Adam and Jesus? Obedience. That's how life is established. If the day you eat of this, the day you disobey, you will die. He eats and he dies. Jesus comes, Jesus comes, and as the, the as the successful, the, the as the true Adam, the obedient son, uh, obeys, and life is the result. The result is life. And so I think that's what Paul's trying to establish. Now, notice when he talks. Notice it's not just. Notice there's an imbalance. He's like, you know, for, for as, you can sum up like this. For every bit as bad as everything is with Adam, it's so much greater with Jesus. And don't forget, we're, we're connected to them in different ways. Um, I've, I had a, a, it went on for months and months and months. This universalist was calling me and emailing me constantly. He always wanted to come to Romans and say, look, Paul's, Paul, Paul's just talking about, uh, he's talking about we're connected to Adam, we're connected to Jesus. I said, yeah, but we're not connected in the same way. It's different. Our connection to Jesus is through what? It's through faith. Our connection through Adam is not just genetic. It is, it is by the, by the virtue of the fact that we are all his children, not just genetically, we are, but we're all his children born outside the garden. But what connects us to Jesus is faith. So there's, it's not, it's not just sort of the same sort of thing. And so what Paul is doing here again is he's establishing how we can be made Righteous, and he uses this word "made righteous." Now, it can be, it's a little bit. There's a lot of discussion about what's the one act of obedience on the part of Jesus. Um, there's many who say, "Well, the act of, that Paul's speaking of his whole entire life," and I, I'm sympathetic with that. I think since he says one act of obedience, I think he's probably emphasizing Jesus's death on the cross, which you know you can't separate all the other things about. You can't separate Jesus's life from that. But I think that's the one act that Paul has sort of first and foremost in his mind, if you can use the phrase in his mind, or at least on his on the page. We can say that safely. Um, that that's the one that's the one act of righteousness in verse eighteen that makes us righteous. And we'll talk about that word "makes" in a minute. Now, when you come to the obedience of Jesus. Uh, it, I think it's pretty well established, right? It's Adam's disobedience that causes us to be sinners. And here I think Paul uses the word sinner and the word righteous as uh, a status. Now, of course, sinners sin. 
and righteous people do righteousness. But in these particular verses, I don't think that's what Paul is emphasizing. I think he's emphasizing you, you, just like you either in Adam or Christ, you, the other way to describe it is you're either in this category. You're either a sinner, that's your status, or you're righteous. And the, 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 the things that you do being one of those two things, yes, he's getting right in Romans 6, he's going to talk all about it. But I think here he's talking about this, the status you have before God based on the failure and disobedience of Adam or the obedience of Jesus. And that you stand before God with this status as righteous. God looks at you righteous. You're righteous. Not emphasizing here the things you do. And here not emphasizing the sins you commit. Though it's true. But here emphasizing your place. Our place in Adam. Does that make sense, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's reducing everything down to the, 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 to the core elements, uh, without emphasizing the, sort of, I hate to say it this way, without emphasizing all the details of how we are personally involved in it, if that makes sense. And that's why I think he's not really emphasizing faith here. He's already talked about it. And he's not really emphasizing the acts of sin. He's talking about what you are, what we are at our core. Who we are, what we are, what makes us. We are either sinners or righteous. That's it. Two categories. In God's, in sort of God's eyes, there's two categories of people. In Adam, sinners. In Christ, righteous. Now, when it comes down to this, now it comes down, now it comes to the question of what is this thing that makes us righteous? This one act of obedience. Now, it's pretty common in our circles for people to divide Christ's obedience between active and passive obedience. Now, some people come to this text and they see the one act of righteousness and they say, okay, it's, uh, it's Jesus' death on the cross. That's passive obedience. That gives forgiveness. Justification, like remember the talk from before, justification is, is only forgiveness. However, it's not that simple. Because we have to t- we have to think about the we have to think about not one the the uh, nature of obedience and two we're going to look at the way Jesus speaks of his own obedience and then we'll come back to this active quite passive business but typically speaking the idea is that Jesus in his life obeyed the Father that's his active obedience and on the cross he submitted and died on the cross that is his passive obedience. And so the two things come together, and we, and the, you know, and we, we have those. Those things are, that's what's imputed to us. Jesus' active and passive obedience. Well, I want to say I'm in agreement with that. I also want to say there's no such thing as obedience that is active and obedience that is passive. It's impossible. Now, I just think of it, think of, think of, think of, put it on, think of uh, daily terms. Um, Think about when you tell your kids to do something, right? If I if I if I if I ask my daughter, tell my daughter to pick up her room, right? It may or may not happen. But if I if I ask her to do it, what does she have to do? Is that active or passive obedience? Now you might say active. She's got to pick up her room. Ah, but not so fast. Picking up her room also means she has to submit to my command, which you would say is passive, right? If you have, if, if you're an employee at work and your, and your boss says, go, you know, go drive, I used to pick up parts at a gas station. Go down and pick up the, I don't know, a muffler. That's the only thing that came to mind. I don't know why. Um, yeah, 
I have to do it. It's active. Actively, I have to do it. But I also have to do what? Submit to my boss's will that I go do it. In other words, I have to give up my own... This, I mean, this, I'm sort of exaggerating. I mean, I wouldn't say this to my boss, but I have to sort of give up my own time. What I might be doing otherwise, I have to submit to him and do it and get it carried out. So you can't separate the two things. You cannot obey anything or anyone without being passive and active. It's impossible. Because there's no such thing as only active obedience. There's no such thing as only passive obedience. And so that's why I can understand... I can understand saying that Jesus' active obedience is his, his, uh, his, his, his um, carrying out God's command in life and his passive is on the cross, but it was all passive and active. Every bit of it. Because you can't separate the two things. And, that's, and so when I hear people come, and I think that's really one of the best ways, one of the best ways to argue against people who say it's only passive, it's only forgiveness, is to point out to them there is no such thing. As only passive obedience. That's not even a possibility. Again, because every act of obedience has to be, by its very nature, active and passive. But we don't just have to rely, we don't just have to rely on sort of human examples, which I think, you know, go a long way. We can also think of the way Jesus, if I can get there, the way Jesus talks about his own obedience. So let's just let Jesus speak about his own obedience. And you get this, John is the best witness for this idea, this idea that all of Jesus that that all of Jesus' obedience is both active and passive. So listen to what listen to Jesus talk about his intention to obey his father's will. John 4 verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's Roman, sorry, that's John 4.34. Romans 6.38, he says, when I say Romans in the next couple minutes, just hear John, okay? John 6.38, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. So you can even hear it there, right? Jesus has been sent and he is carrying out the will of his father. Um, he, he, um, he goes on to say... Um, Jesus tells the Pharisees that the Father is with him. This is in chapter 8, verse 29. The Father never leaves me alone, has not left me alone, because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So he's always, you might say, well, he's actively obeying. But then he gets to, then he gets to John, you get to John 10, 18, and you have this really important verse. He's talking about his upcoming death, he says, his life. He says, no one takes it from me, I lay it down of my own accord. That sounds about as active as you can get. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That sounds like he's fully engaged, active. This command I received from my father, passive. Now, you can see, I just want to reassure you that I am a proponent of active and passive obedience. And I'm a proponent of those things being always together. And of, of not sort of cutting it really neatly down the middle. Like, that's a piece of active obedience. That's a piece of passive obedience. Right? When Jesus is, when Jesus is dying on the cross, that is, that is him. He is submitting to the Father and he is staying on the cross. 
It's active and passive. And it must be. It must be. This is why, this is why I, I, I'm on, completely on board with the idea. But I think we need to be careful that we don't create sort of this uh, division that the Bible doesn't create. And, and actually, it's a division that doesn't exist even in practical daily human terms. In terms of, right? I mean, there's, there, we create this division between active and passive. Now, theologically, it's important. Theologically, it's important to show why, you know, you need, we need to be forgiven and we need to have this positive standing before God. That Jesus, Jesus dies for our sins. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus lives a perfect life and that, you know, his life and death are imputed to us. It's important theologically that we be able to explain both of those things. But I think it's also important biblically and theologically that we don't separate them to the point that we speak of it in sort of non-biblical kind of ways. Um, and I think, honestly, that that is the best way to defend the doctrine of Jesus' obedience being passive and active. Is say, of course it's passive and active. It has to be. You know, because that's where, that's where sometimes the Protestant doctrine of justification takes, a sh- takes shots from people as people, people argue against this active obedience part. And they say it's just his death on the cross. So you see, on both sides, there can be an overemphasis on dividing obedience in ways that it cannot be divided. Right? So, so in other words, we can keep arguing for active and passive obedience, but what we want to do is step up and say, yeah, because you can't have one without the other. That's why there's both. That's why, that's why there's both sorts of obedience. Because you know why? Because there's obedience. Right? That's where we begin. It's Jesus' obedience, period, flat out. And then we can, we can subdivide that if we need to. But it's his obedience that is, that is given to us, that becomes ours. Now, Paul uses a different word here than he does in Romans 4. In Romans 4, he uses this word uh, counted or reckoned, right? And we talked about that earlier. Here he uses a different word. He uses this word made to be righteous. And this word has, this word can make us a little uncomfortable. Except that Paul, the word Paul's using here isn't typically used as in a sort of a commentary on how people act. It's on what they are or, or how something uh, is used, what it is. So for instance, this is the same word that's used for, say, some of the utensils and the, the, uh, the uh, furniture inside the temple, you know, made to, made to serve a particular uh, function. Or a priest. It's the same word, made to be a priest. It's not a commentary on whether it's a good priest or a bad priest. It's, 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 it's the word that's typically used for put in that position, right? Without, I mean, it could be a bad priest, good priest. But he's put in position to be a priest. Same thing a king. He's made to be a king. Not a commentary, just in and of itself, on whether it's good king, bad king. He's put in the position of being king. This is the same word Paul uses here. It says, we're made to be righteous. Again, he's not emphasizing what we do and the facts that we do righteousness, but that we are absolutely, firmly placed before the eyes of God in this status of righteous. Right? And it's ours. Now, in Romans 6, he's quickly going to come and say, hey, listen, don't think for one second that sin can abound, or that we can go on sinning, right? He's going to, Paul knows what people are going to think, and so he addresses it in Romans 6, right? That's why he goes into Romans 6 and the freedom, the new freedom of obedience, which 
is what I'll, in, in my breakout session, I'm going to talk about how we're, we're free to do what we can never do. That is, live for something besides ourselves. Right? That's Christian freedom, is I don't have to live for myself in any way, shape, or form. I'm free to live for other people. In other words, obey God. Uh, and so, but, that, but that's, that, Paul's, Paul's waiting for that in Romans 6. Here, he's talking about, look, Jesus has obeyed as the true Adam. He has obeyed once and for all, and it is on the basis of Jesus' obedience, which is both his death on the cross and his life, because the two things, as John 10, 18, just always go and repeat John 10, 18. I lay down my own accord. No one takes it from me. This command I receive from my father. He's submitting to his father's command, and he is laying down his life of his own accord. It just could not be. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. That's my, that's my favorite verse on this, on this whole thing. John 10, 18. John 10, 18. And so his, it's his obedience that becomes ours, just like Adam's obedience, sorry, disobedience, is the thing that provides us with this status of being sinners. Now, of course, we sin. But what Paul is, but again, just to, to end where we, where we began, Paul is talking about, look, you're one or the other. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. You are righteous or you're a sinner. And of course, you know, the, the, this is the, again, this is the whole foundation for our discussion of righteousness. This is why we can be sure of our righteousness. This is why we can be sure that God tells the truth. When God declares someone to be just, it is not just God making it up because he can because he's God. And he can just change the rules on people and be like, well, yeah, I know what I said before, but you're you're righteous. We're just going to sweep it under the rug. That's impossible. God's already, God's declared that he's just and always does what's right. And God is just and always does what's right. And he, to the extent... Here's how faithful God is to himself, that he will send his only son to die in our place. That's how devoted God is to his own word and his own righteousness. Is he will, God, God, God demands that his law be fulfilled, and so what does he do? He sends his son to fulfill it. So God demands and then provides for what he demands. And what do we do? Romans 4, we receive it all as a gift, completely as a gift, that our faith is, and and it's through faith, not our faith itself, but what is it? The obedience, the righteousness of Christ that we have through faith, but is the thing that God looks at us. And you have to understand this, brothers, when God looks at us, when God looks at you, it's not as though you disappear and he only sees a whole bunch of Jesuses or something. Right? Sometimes people talk about it that way. It's like, God doesn't see me. Well, he does. That's the beautiful thing. Is God sees you and knows you better than you know yourself. But you know what he sees? He sees around you, surrounding you, and in and coming out of you, the righteousness of Christ. That is yours by faith. Right? Because of, because of Jesus' obedience and what he's done. And he counts that to be ours. Right? And that's why, going back to earlier... If you know if you're preaching Romans four, you can just let Romans four be Romans four, and you're knowing you know what Romans five is coming. And, I, and when I get to Romans five, I'm going to establish that whole positive side of it and show how it works, show how the whole thing fits together. But I'm not going to give forgiveness short shrift because if, if we're not forgiven, it's we're hope it's hopeless, right? So the, again, this is the very foundation of it. This is the core of the big picture of the Bible. 
is the problem of Adam. And it's, I mean, that's, that's not even, that doesn't even do it justice. The problem of Adam has been solved once and for all. Right? And, the, and so, you know, the, the problem with the law is a reflection of the problem with Adam. Uh, because Adam, in his innocence, right, in his created innocence, was given the command he couldn't do it. So what are people outside of the law, outside of the garden, under God's condemnation, with death hanging all over them? I mean, we are. This is a very graphic way of putting it. But uh, 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 a famous uh, writer once said, we are all, every one of us, born over a grave. That's a dire way of painting the picture. And, you know, it's true. It's true. But, you know, that grave has been defeated because Jesus burst out of it, right? Because he perfectly obeyed his Father. And that, again, becomes the foundation for who we are. And that's why you can be righteous. And that's why what what we're doing is we're called to believe what God says. And that's why it's by faith. Not believe what we say. Like in the back of your mind right now, you might be thinking of like, well, I know what the Bible says, but here's what I know about myself. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe yourself or are you going to believe God? You're going to believe Satan who's telling you all the time? Nope. Or are you going to believe God? That you are made to be righteous, not on the basis of what you do, but that Jesus has perfectly in every way done everything required for your sins to be forgiven and for you to stand before God spotless. And not just spotless, but as one who has done everything God could ever, everything that God requires. Everything that pleases him. Put it that way. Pleasing to him. Not just God's checklist, right? We think of it like that. Well, God's checked on. No, it's pleasing. When people do God's will, it pleases him. And so he looks at you as somebody who is pleasing to him because you are counted to be as one who has perfectly done his will. And that's why, I think that's why when we come to Romans 5, 12 to 21, we need to emphasize, we need to emphasize that just the core things that are being said. This the status that Paul's talking about. And I think that's why here he's not, for just a few verses, he, for just a few verses, he's not putting the emphasis on, he already has established it's by faith. But here, he's talking about here's what your faith is in. Right? This is where the righteousness comes from. This is why the, your, righteous, your faith is not your righteousness. Here's your righteousness. This is what, if you have faith, you can believe this 100%. So anyway, that's the, again, that's the foundation of righteousness. And I hope it's, been helpful to talk about. We, we have plenty of time, I think, for questions.